If you're intrigued by the mysteries of the unknown, now you can investigate thousands on Discovery Plus. Stream exclusive originals plus a collection of favorites, all for just $4.99. Discovery Plus is the streaming home of paranormal, plus so much more. Start your free trial. Welcome to How We Win. All over the country, people are doing extraordinary things. We're giving you the tools that you need to make a difference right now. The best antidote to anxiety is action. Now, we've won some battles, but we still have more work to do. We win when we engage in the work to make our country more fair, just, and equitable for us all. Joining us today is messaging expert, host of the Words to Win By podcast, and our very first repeat guest, Anat Shankar Osorio. We had a great conversation with her back in January, you probably remember, and today we talk with her about what messages have worked over the past year and how we should talk about the results of the election. She's got some great insight. I'm Steve Pearson. And I'm Mariah Craven. And And this this is How How We We Win. So I'm so excited, Mariah, for everyone to hear part two of our interview with Anat. She was so brilliant in January. Mm -hmm. I went back and listened to it before the interview and we were adorable. It was the first first (laughs) podcast we did after the holidays in January. 2020 is filled with so much hope. (laughs) (laughs) We were so excited and all those kids just ready to take on 2020. We're different people now. Yeah, the the tone has shifted a little. <laughs> but her advice still amazing. Not just like good advice for campaign messaging, but just for how we talk to each other and to our friends and family about all of this. Really helpful stuff. So yeah, stick around, take a listen, learn <laughs> something. I, I think the big news at the moment is that the national transition is officially underway. Yes, it's official. And Trump is doing all kinds of weird messaging around it's not over, but it's over or he's not conceding, but the transition's moving forward, but the transition doesn't mean that it's over. I don't know what he's talking about. It really doesn't matter. Somebody (laughs) not Trump is clearly writing those because they're full of somewhat like half fact factual information they make sense there's no random capitalization on the tweets somebody else has been you know sharing that that twitter account with trump and somehow convinced him that this transition is going to happen i guess he's going to take credit for it moving forward although emily murphy from the general services administration says that this was her decision hers alone, even though Trump took credit for it. Emily Murphy, American hero. Yet another Trump appointee that, you know, somehow our republic is is so far managing to survive them in spite of their best efforts. Yep. And um, Pennsylvania certified, Nevada certified, states are certifying, and Biden has announced his cabinet, which is really exciting, I have to say. Like, I and and please, Mariah, I promise you, I mm. am not going to get complacent. 
I'm going to stay vigilant. We are going to keep our eye on this administration, on the Biden administration. So I'm not going to be Pollyanna-esque about this, but I am so excited to see a cabinet full of actual qualified experts in these crucial positions, some diversity on the cabinet as well. (laughs) And it's just kind of refreshing. I mean, it's a low bar because you would just think, uh, yes, every person who takes on one of these globally important positions should be qualified. But that hasn't been the case in the last four years, starting with, Mm -hmm. you know, Rex Tillerson as Secretary of State. When we remember, if we want to go back, it's just... Right. We don't have to go... Yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's exciting. Yeah. Well, I mean, how do you feel? Um, de- definitely hopeful. I mean, just where the country is right now, it's you know challenging times, but hopeful. Like you said, that these are all experts with experience. I think that um, the Trump administration had very few of those. It seemed to be a collective of of grifters and opportunists and and wealthy donors who seemed <clears throat> Betsy DeVos to be tasked with like <laughs> destroying everything from the inside out. Um, yeah. So it'll be refreshing to see that some adults are going to be in charge and um, we do have to make sure that they listen to us though. Right. Exactly. So we will stay vigilant. Our work doesn't stop, but it looks like we have some partners in this work and um I'll, I'll, I'm going to jump ahead, if you don't mind, point of privilege, uh, and share my reason for hope, okay. uh, because it has to do with the cabinet. And one specific cabinet appointee, although there are a lot of great ones to celebrate, John Kerry as special presidential envoy for climate. We have never had a cabinet-level position on the climate. The most pressing issue we have for humankind is climate change. And we've seen an an administration that has decimated the EPA, has pulled out of the Paris Agreement, that literally denies the climate science and refuses to acknowledge climate, that climate change is real. We now have someone who is going to be leading the global charge, bringing us back into the Paris Agreement, and then, um, you know, working with the State Department, working with the global community on the most important issue facing all of us. It really is. So, we have a lot of work to do. We got to do it together. Um, he can't do it on his own. But having that cabinet level position and acknowledging that and putting that to the forefront, uh, it, it does bring me hope. Yeah, I think that's just one of the the familiar names we've been hearing about. Um, uh, possibly Janet Yellen at Treasury, um, Anthony Blinken from the Obama administration overseeing the State Department and foreign policy. Um, Alejandro Mayorkas heading yeah. Homeland Security and um, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, uh, who has just so much foreign service experience and, and great relationships in, in Washington and all over the world for ambassador to the United Nations. So uh, exciting stuff to um, nerd out about and to also know <laughs> who we need to write our our letters emails and and direct our phone calls to you know what is is you know quite exciting with you know john Kerry and joe biden and even donald trump this um this idea that these older men are so infested in their physical appearance like 
the plastic surgery and bronzer spending alone <laughs> is probably enough to lift up the economy. <laughs> wow. Well, I definitely with Trump, I didn't I didn't know that uh, Biden and Kerry had had plastic surgery. How it's could a, you not? I mean, scoop. the fillers and the tucks are so <laughs> obvious. <laughs> Sometimes I'm like, who is that? Oh, it's John Kerry. <laughs> Well, he looks good. So plump and smooth. I had I had to admit when he walked up there for the press conference, I was like, "How old is John Kerry? He looks good. He looks really, he looks youthful." So maybe that's it. Whatever it takes. Um, (laughs) Speaking of feeling good, (laughs) what's your reason for hope? My reason for hope is the start of the holiday season. To me heading towards the new year, it always feels like an opportunity to reset and uh, this year Mm -hmm. more than ever. And I hope that um, I hope that we have an opportunity to reset because I think we all we all need it. Because if there was ever a time of year where we we people deserve that, it's now in 2020. Very true. Well, speaking of of holidays. We have Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody, coming Happy up here. Thanksgiving, yeah. So let's do one last little segment before we get into our call of action. Thanksgiving foods. What's on your Thanksgiving table? What's one thing that's always got to be there? So I'm going to cheat a little bit. We're just doing a traditional takeout, Thanksgiving, turkey, whatever. Nice. Um, yes, I'm grateful that we can do that and that there are restaurants or, you know, we live in Los Angeles. We are having another, you know, significant stay at home, shut down type of situation here. Yeah. Um, and so we are going to be ordering takeout from a favorite place and, and supporting them. Um, and so I like non-traditional Thanksgiving. So we might also do some random kind of sides. And that comes from When I used to live in Washington, D.C., for Thanksgiving, I wouldn't go anywhere. I would drive to see my grandmother who lived nearby in Harpers Ferry, West Virginia, one of my most favorite places in all the world. Hmm. And um, it would just be the two of us. And so (laughs) we wouldn't cook, even though she was an amazing cook. We would go to a buffet nearby. Mm. And I know that nobody's doing buffets this year, but <laughs> that was our thing was to go together to a buffet and eat as much of we could as we could of a wide variety of things. So a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And that's how I like to do Thanksgiving. Wow. So your answer to my what's the one thing that you have to have on Thanksgiving was everything. All the things. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good answer. Yeah, yeah. Um, What about you? What's the one thing that you have to have on your Thanksgiving table? Well, um, it's got to involve turkey for Thanksgiving. Okay. Uh, That turkey meal, you always it always comes around, and it's so delicious. And I think, why aren't we just eating this meal all year round? Right. Turkey and stuffing and gravy, it's delicious. So. This year, my wife is out of town. She's coming back on Thanksgiving at the end of the day and then has to self-quarantine. So we can't really be together. I'm here with my daughter. My brother, who is down in Orange County, is coming up, and we're going to eat outside together. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to make 
beer can turkey. Oh. If you've ever done a beer can chicken before, uh, which is a way to grill a chicken on, on the grill by sticking a beer can up its wazoo and using its legs like a tripod, you can do the same thing with a turkey, but using a big oversized Foster's can. And you put some of the uh, rub in the can and you put the rub all over the, the bird and you cook it on uh, indirect heat and the, uh, the beer bubbles up and steams and fills that bird cavity with all of the good moisture and it's absolutely delicious. You have to do it with a smaller bird, which is perfect because it's only the four of us going to eat this turkey. So beer can turkey. Look it up online. It's a fantastic way to cook a small bird. You're going to have an Australian turkey. <laughs> Fastest. I guess a Sapporo can might work too, but it needs to be a big beer can. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't wait to hear how it turns out. I didn't know that that was even possible. We'll post the recipe on... No, we won't. We won't, but you can find it. <laughs> And I'll post my favorite way to order takeout. <laughs> <laughs> You'll post the link to the hometown buffet, which is now <laughs> shut down. Oh. Uh, so, okay, <laughs> our to-do list, other than okay. make uh, delicious food for Thanksgiving and enjoy yourself. Enjoy yourself. Yeah, and, and celebrate this holiday in whatever weird way you can. We're all being safe. We're not all going to be together in groups, but there will be Zooms and conversations to be had. We're going to have... Our conversation with a knot, which will help you navigate those <laughs> tricky conversations with some family members. But we do have uh, some work to do as well. You want to talk about some some of the stuff we have coming up? It's another letter writing party. Uh huh. With uh -huh. our friends at Gaslit Nation, that's coming up on December second. That's right. Wednesday the 2nd, uh, Andrea Chalupa and Sarah Kinzior from the Gaslit Nation podcast are going to have another letter writing party for Georgia, of course. They're going to talk about all of your favorite things that you're afraid of and why you should be afraid of them. You leave there no. writing, letters to, <laughs> writing letters to Georgia <laughs> and feeling really terrified. You don't no. want to miss it. <laughs> they're, so, they're so smart. You'll, you'll, you'll leave feeling that you'll leave that party feeling accomplished and like 20 times smarter. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> and a little freaked out. Not scared. <laughs> aware. And then, of course, aware. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, we have our Georgia Hub, our Flip Georgia page that we'll link to on our podcast. You can get to it at swingleft.org, but also we'll have the links to the Gaslit Letter Writing Party and also our Flip Georgia page on swingleft.org slash podcast. Yep, lots to do. But before you get to work and enjoying whatever you're going to have on Thursday, take a few minutes to listen to this awesome interview. Everybody should definitely come to Baltimore. We had to find a different way to put our passion to work. If you love your job and love what you do, every day goes on as you want it. I think how we look at art can be world-changing. All of these businesses are taking precautions to make sure that everyone is safe. We're ready. Masks, distancing, and frequent cleaning are just the beginning. Learn more at Baltimore.org. 
Anat Shankar Asario is a communications expert, actually more like a communications guru, <laughs> and author of the acclaimed book, Don't Buy It, The Trouble with Talking Nonsense About the Economy. She's also the host of the Must Listen podcast. I can't stress this enough. You must listen to it. Words to Win By and purveyor of her must-follow Twitter feed. Anat, thank you so much for coming back on our show. Yeah, welcome back. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Okay, so we have so much important stuff to talk about. But before we do, Mariah and I just shared our favorite Thanksgiving foods. So I want you to pitch in what is always on your Thanksgiving table. Oh, the only purpose of Thanksgiving, according to me, is pie. <laughs> the rest of it is just waiting for pie. <laughs> and Fair. I guess in that category... I like to go non-traditional. I like to do a one-two combo where there's an apple pie with a homemade butter crust, not shortening, and then usually change it up with a key lime pie. Ooh, key lime is one of my favorite pies, but I wouldn't have thought of that as Thanksgiving, so... It's whatever you want. It's the coronavirus, Steve. We can do what we want. (laughs) Yeah, do, do whatever you want. Um, so, Anat, as Steve was saying, you're our first repeat guest. We had an awesome conversation with you back in January in the mm-hmm. before times. Um, we actually all got to be in the same room together and look each other in the eye. Since then, a few things have changed. Has your messaging advice changed since then? Um, well, I like to call it the BC time, the before coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Uh has my messaging advice changed? Remarkably, not. Ah. I still pretty much feel like a broken record. Uh, <laughs> the same things. Some permutation of talking about Trump is how we got Trump. Mm. Not talking about race does not end the race conversation. It just means the only voices heard on it are the nasty lying dog whistling of the right Mm. um we need to say what we're for what you fight you feed i mean i'm just i'm like a canard factory (laughs) (laughs) well you talked in in our last interview a lot about race class narrative uh which was so compelling and now that we're doing the inevitable post-election debrief of why we lost seats and who we should have performed better with. I was really compelled by this narrative that you developed that's inclusive of everybody. Um, did campaigns adopt the race class narrative? What worked and what didn't? What What's your debrief on that? Yeah, so my obviously absolutely objective take. <laughs> <laughs> right. As, as everyone else's object, take is objective, right? We're not all sure. just uh, out in search of evidence for the theory we already held. Um, right. That's what's happening. <laughs> right. So we ran a project called the Race Cause Narrative Action that I got to be part of, incredibly proud of, across Midwestern battleground states. We worked especially hard in Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. We ran um, a really wonderful, incredible operation in Ohio. We had folks in Missouri, Indiana, and then also kind of randomly Colorado, the Mm -hmm. Midwest Mm -hmm. project. And our states did remarkably. 
And not only did they do remarkably, they did remarkably by speaking about race, not running away from it. Because again, there is a fundamental recognition that politics is not solitaire. And we don't just get to decide that our voters are only going to hear from us. They are going to hear the relentless and unabating dog whistles from the other side. And if we don't have a rejoinder to that, then our economic populist messages cannot break through, right? Mm -hmm. When they're hearing from one side law and order, and when they're hearing from one side fear, and when they're hearing from one side just the simple invective about Detroit or Milwaukee or Philly, which is, of course, all code for Black people, Mm -hmm. um, or conversely, you know, the converse dog whistle of suburban housewives, which, of course, is code for white women, then we, of course, have to be race forward. It's not even just a moral imperative, which it is. It's also just a strategic one. And what we saw across our Midwestern states is that in the very epicenter, let's take Minnesota, in the very epicenter of the defund police debate, the law and order, quote unquote, debate, the sort of they're coming to get you suburban women, be afraid, be very afraid, we won. You know, Trump didn't have a prayer. We didn't meet every single goal that we had. We wanted to flip the Senate. The particular state Senate races that our campaign worked on, we did win. And we made huge inroads, not just in terms of mobilization, but yes, in terms of persuasion. The same is true in Wisconsin, where obviously we have a much, much, much narrower victory. That's obvious. In Michigan, we have a much wider one. But you know, the returns are still coming in and we are seeing the decided efficacy of using this race class narrative approach in those states. I do want to to just kind of continuing down this line and and maybe it's not even, I, I don't know, I guess it remains to be seen whether it's worth talking about it at this point. But just looking back over the summer and you mentioned the phrase defund the police, which became, I would say, a popular and controversial message because it meant so many different things to so many different people. Can you talk about like what you thought about the defund the police message, um, what its meaning is, and how it might be used going forward successfully? Yeah. And I I want to preface this by saying this is an incredibly complicated and nuanced conversation. Mm-hmm. And I'm a big believer in the notion that all God's prayers got a place in the choir. <laughs> and I think that there are different roles for different kinds of messengers. And I'm glad you're asking me about this really hard question, because I think that, you know, th- this is just... Defund the police is a particular phrase that is forcing a reckoning around a lot bigger questions. So Mm -hmm. if you'll allow me to say several things about it, um, I will. The first is that I don't think it's my job as a white lady to tell black people how to protest their own genocide. Mm -hmm. Right. And... I think a lot about the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising that happened at the outset of the Nazi regime and was successful, but ultimately was obviously not enough to stop the genocide of Jews. And I just wonder how the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising would have been, was characterized and would have been characterized if it were sort of on Twitter today. I imagine Mm -hmm. it was quite rowdy and uppity. Mm -hmm. 
right? Not at all very polite. Right. And so the first thing is that if you want to change the conversation, you have to have a different conversation. And so the way that I view defund the police is that it is the rallying cry to try to move the Overton window to force a different conversation. And that that is very much the role of activists and activism. And I think that we know that anything that challenges the status quo is by definition always going to be considered improper and impolite. I mean, that is what Martin Luther King was writing about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, right? Mm -hmm. So I think that. And, and I know this is going to sound contradictory, generally speaking, I personally am not a proponent of negative messaging. And by negative messaging, I mean any message that is a reaction to what our opposition is doing. So anything that is a no and a don't and a stop and a can't, right? Right. I remember from our last conversation, uh, you want to talk about what we're for and, and not what we're against, right? Yes. So what I think and what I would argue that we did successfully, and I think in Minnesota is, is where I would really highlight it, but we did variations of this theme in all of our states, is we pushed a fund our lives message. And in some cases, we pushed a move our money message. Mm. And the reason why fund our lives could work, and, and you know, for you two in Los Angeles, I think that this was absolutely critical in the passage of um, the LA County ballot initiative around. Right. So I think what happens with defund the police is that it is what allows campaigns, if they are smart, to run an affirmative positive message to say fund our lives or move our money, or this is how we should be spending the resources that we generate together. This is the world we want to see. So what we did was sort of a one-two punch. We did fund our lives and we did, we know what keeps us safe. And we had active messaging through peer-to-peer -peer texting, through huge and really expertly done and expertly run phone banking, um, deep canvassing that was happening um, under the umbrella of people's action across states where we really were pushing this message of this is the world as we want to see it. We know what keeps us safe. It's living in communities where all of our families can care for one another and get the support we need. And that happens by providing for ourselves and each other, not by sending ever more resources toward militarized police mm -hmm. that detain, harm, and even kill Black people. So if you have a message that is about what people hunger for and what people desire, and at the same time you have this activist wing that's pushing defund the police, then that's all God's critters having a place in the choir. And the reason why it sickens me to see the kind of more centrist democratic criticism of defund the police as being the source and the cause of us losing seats in the House, for example. Mm. First of all, I mean, I have so many things to say about that just from a data perspective, and I'm happy to go after that. It's just utter, it's just utter and complete nonsense. Like mm. there is just the most cherry picking of ideas and information. It's really intellectually lazy and dishonest to mm -hmm. say that any one phrase or notion that no one running as a Democrat actually adopted themselves 
just it's difficult for me to put into words just how spurious I think that that claim is. But that claim, if you don't actually have a message about safety, if you don't actually have a message that leans into race and that talks about the world as we would like to see it, and that talks about the proper role of policing, then of course you are going to be much more easily caricatured by the other side and much more easily pigeonholed and much more easily lambasted as holding XYZ position, even though you never uttered it yourself, because Mm -hmm. you didn't actually provide your own platform to be for. And that's shame on you as a candidate. Mm -hmm. That's a lot of uh, great insight there. Um, On your website, asocommunications.com, which by the way, Everybody should check out. Uh, you are so generous with so many great resources on your website. You have some messaging guidance on the election results there as well. I think you were just kind of talking about some of it. Can you share some of what's on there with our listeners? Yeah. So we've been on a roller coaster. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have. <laughs> and the thing about a roller coaster is that you know when you board it that when you go up, 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 and then you come down, you're going to lose your stomach. And you know that you're going to make it to the end of the ride. And you know you're going to get off the ride. But while the roller coaster is happening, even though you understand all of those things intellectually, you're still experiencing tremendous amounts of fear. And it's corporeal, right? It's like in your body all the way through. And actually, you pay money to have this experience, which is an interesting thing about human beings. Not all, <laughs> and you choose to do it. In yes. this, in this case, many of us did not choose no, to jump on this roller coaster. And, and that's where the analogy breaks apart. I will absolutely <laughs> grant you. But why am I bringing this up? I'm bringing this up because in the lead up to the election, we were pushing really, really hard. And telling as many folks as we possibly could, and I won't I won't argue that like this was penetrated perfectly, but we were pushing really hard, as many of you know, the message count every vote, right? Count every vote, every vote counts. Count every vote, every vote counts. Because we predicted all of this because it was all deeply predictable, right? Mm-hmm. We predicted that Trump was going to try to stop us from voting. We saw it happening all along with the attacks on the post office and with the attempts to eliminate um, ballot drop-off locations and with the questioning of, you know, poll workers and, and, and with COVID and with trying to force people into dangerous voting in person and with casting aspersions on early voting. So first, they couldn't keep us from voting. And then they couldn't keep us from counting. And we told folks there's going to be a red to blue shift. Mm-hmm. Right. Early votes are counted late. Early votes are counted late. Early votes are counted late. <laughs> votes, are counted late. Our votes are counted late. Votes are counted late. I knew this too. I heard this. And it's still, uh, Mariah and I talked about this in the podcast right after the election. It was, Even knowing all this, it was so hard that night not to just get what we wanted. You know, it was just tough to internalize that. And we told folks do not flip out. Do not flip out. (laughs) And the reason we told folks do not flip out wasn't just that flipping out is not healthy for you. It was actually because we saw in the research that 
any kind of um, wavering from the left, any kind of public discourse that was like, I don't know, maybe it's not, it's not going our way. We lost. What's happening? We're losing. Ah! <laughs> First of all, just at a minimum, that was giving the GOP a hard on. So if nothing else convinces you not to do that, I would hope that would. Gross. <laughs> You're welcome, Mariah. You're welcome. Beyond that, what we saw is that that kind of lack of confidence from our side was feeding the narrative of fraud. Mm. It was reinforcing this idea that something about these election results are suspicious because, oh, look, even even the Democrats, even the left is said on Tuesday, you know, oh, no, this is bad. And then suddenly things are changing. How is it possible that things are changing? When we had urged folks to adopt a posture of confidence and a posture that said, our votes are coming, here's the reason why, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that happened. Then we had a celebration a few Saturdays ago. Time is no longer relevant, so I don't know Saturday. <laughs> right. I remember, but sometime. And the mere fact of that being a party and not a protest, hmm. that was a very big deal. And it has been incredibly challenging. You know, I only come in one flavor and that's candid. So here I am. (laughs) Getting the left to take yes for an answer, to adopt the posture of being the winning team has been unbelievably difficult as a communications person behind the scenes trying to help folks sort of figure out what kind of posture should we adopt and what kind of face should we have before the camera and what kinds of hashtags should we be using and all of that. And we have become so accustomed to being in the resistance that I feel like the thing I just keep telling people is abandon your attachment to being in the resistance and accustom yourself to being at the helm. If you want people to believe that you're in charge, tell them that you are. Mm. And when we continue to say, you know, oh no, this is happening. He's going to do this. He's going to do that. And here I'm going to get myself all the way into trouble. And I hope this trouble doesn't spill on over (laughs) the two of you because you're not responsible for me. (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. I, I don't. I'll, we'll do what the Trump administration is doing right now. What all the Republicans will shortly do is be like, I never knew that person. I don't know. I don't That's know. Right. Never met them. Or you can edit this part out. So <laughs> this question around, do we call it a coup? Mm, this is a great question. Right. So from a strategic perspective, because I am not going to argue about what constitutes a coup and what does not constitute a coup and what is the definition of that term and which kinds of things are violations and not. I am happy to have opinions about that. That's not my area of expertise. And also, I just don't think that that's the relevant consideration. The relevant consideration from my vantage point in terms of public communication is everything that we say is toward a purpose. And that purpose is either to get people to believe a certain thing or to get people to do a certain thing. The end. 
telling the truth for its own sake is an incredibly important function. Mm. And that is the function of journalism. And it is the function of historians who are telling the tale afterwards. And it is the function of political theorists. And it is the function of lots of people. But in terms of front-facing communication, kind of what is our top-line thing that we want to say to people, what we have seen over and over again, we saw it all cycle, and we see it in the post-election work as well, is that anything that reinforces the notion of Trump as a strong man, as an all-powerful authoritarian ruler, diminishes people's desire to participate because we are essentially telling them this is the Titanic, right? You're screwed. It's over. And so what the coup language does is it unwittingly lends Trump more power than he merits. And in fact, what we see working is messaging from inevitability. We turned out in record numbers in the midst of a pandemic and every barrier they threw in the way, we stood with and for each other and we chose us in this election. They Mm. could not stop us from voting. They could not stop trusted election administrators from counting. And they will not stop us from having the will of the people prevail. Joe Biden is our president-elect and we will see him sworn in And then we will keep fighting to make this a place of liberty and justice for all. We have to message from the position that we are in, which is that we have overcome these unbelievable deliberate barriers to deliver on our democracy as imperfect and dysfunctional as it is that we are working on. And we will keep doing that. And there is no question we will prevail. I will stand on that hill with you for sure. And I think that that's uh, what the Biden campaign's doing. That certainly seems – I haven't seen Biden come out and, and with any kind of coup language. It's, he's just laughed it all off. We're going to – there'll be a transition. I'm going to be – you know, like, I'm doing the work. Here's my team, you know. That's exactly right. And that position of confidence, which really – began in the third debate when he, you know, had that direct camera, direct to camera moment. And he said, Mm -hmm. you know, he can say whatever he wants to, what matters is what you say. Mm -hmm. That's the advice that we have been pushing, which is adopt a posture of confidence. You know, pretend you're not the left for a moment, I guess, just to be like flippant and kind of snide. I'm sorry. (laughs) And If you want people to come toward you, be attractive. People are not attracted to miserableism. People are not attracted to an endless fight. There has to be a beautiful tomorrow, right? Martin Luther King got famous for saying, I have a dream, not I have a litany of complaints, even in the midst of the most (laughs) horrifying circumstances possible. And so, again, I am not saying we don't talk about our problems. It is absolutely vital and essential that we talk about the efforts to silence and suppress Black folks, new Americans, young people, indigenous folks. Absolutely. And that's in the messaging. You'll see it there. But we have to lead with and reaffirm our absolute assurance that we got this, we got us, and we are going to make it. I don't see how that's going to get any of us in trouble, but (laughs) I found it very powerful. So thank you for that. I kind of now want to talk about 
a, a group of folks on the right who, you know, Steve and I have talked a little bit about them as cult members almost um, that are going to believe any message currently coming from Trump or from Q, whoever this QAnon person is. Um, I was listening to um, an interview with some of them in, in Florida who were, you know, were tearfully talking about how how wrong the left has it and, you know, how Trump, they don't, they didn't use the word coup, but that, that Trump really has earned a second term in spite of all, like there's zero evidence of that. Do we talk to those people? Are they lost to us? Are they lost to reason? And if not, what do we say to them? Yeah, that's a hard question. So lots of them are lost to reason and and lost to us. Um, that's just the simple truth. I mean, you know, someone was reminding me today that there are people who don't believe that we landed on the moon, right? right. I mean, that's a far less toxic and noxious example. But like, there are people who just really, to quote the beginning of an Ani DeFranco song, they keep pounding their fists on reality, hoping it will break. Mm. And there are some people who just simply will not live in a reality based universe. And that's just super disturbing. Mm. We're talking about people at the margins. So there are some group of people that are just absolutely lost to us, um, either because they believe just entirely and wholeheartedly in white supremacy right? Or because they are kind of completely bought into these deep, deep, deep state conspiracy theories, etc. No evidence, so on and so forth. But at the margin, the, there are folks, and we see it in the data, who voted for Trump. So they held on all the way through voting for Trump. And it's sadly not the majority. Um, who are cracking? And who are upset with and seeing through the fact that he has now lost, for example, dozens, mm -hmm. dozens of lawsuits for simply having no evidence. Right. right. And to me, you know, the bigger question is this has been their project for a very long time, right? This notion of making government so small and so weak that you can, quote, drown it in a bathtub. Because that is the end point of attempting to extract as much wealth as humanly possible from working people of mm. every race, color, creed, and background in order to siphon it off and hand it to an ever smaller set of wealthier, whiter hands. And the only way that you can convince enough people that government, that the collective, that having universal health care, that having sort of a robust response to COVID, that having paid family leave, that having broad-based labor protections, any anything, any kind of collective thing, the only way that you can convince a significant portion of people that that is just a terrible thing to do is through the one-two punch of either shaming and blaming people of color, principally black people, but also new immigrants and other people of color, that they're the source and the cause of our problems by dog whistling. 
and therefore impugning government itself as a profligate bad actor that takes from quote unquote hardworking people who we are supposed to believe are white and hands it out to lazy undeserving people. And I don't need to tell you who we're supposed to think those people are. Mm -hmm. And what's happening now with this attempt to sow chaos and undermine the legitimacy of of the very notion of the consent of the governed, right? That Joe Biden possesses the consent of the governed, that he is the person, he, he is, the will of the people has prevailed and he has won enough of this arcane, completely racist uh, right. construction we have, which is the Electoral College, which he did by wide margins, not to mention the massive margins of the popular vote, obviously, as you know. This is sort of the next step of that let's destroy any sense of government at all by making it seem that the government that we are about to walk into is illegitimate. And that is what really scares me about it. Because if we thought it was toxic and horrifying, and it is, when Joe Wilson screamed, you lie, at President Obama when he was in the speech, it's sort of, it's going to be that on repeat. And I think that, you know, either we stand up here and we say, we we got to live together on this little, little blue marble that we're all occupying and specifically on this parcel of land that we stole from indigenous people and, and slapped with the title United States of America. And we are living here together and we've got to sort out how to do that. Otherwise, we're going to destroy ourselves. And obviously, we're going to destroy the people that we've intentionally marginalized first, but eventually, it's going to screw us all. Right. Well, you know, every election, it, it seems to show us how deeply divided we are. And um, there's a lot to worry about there, because I, in, in my lifetime, I can't remember a time when we were so overtly divided. Um, I wasn't around post the civil rights movement and all that. But um, I know you you have to go and uh, boy, I just love having these conversations with you. Um, I'm so grateful you came back. When you were with us last January, we asked you what gives you hope to finish up our interview as we always do. And uh, you said it was people rising up and getting active for the first time, that you were inspired by the people power. We've seen a lot more people rise up since then. Uh, and... Uh, like you said, in protest, but also recently in celebration. So does that still give you hope? What gives you hope for the future right now? Um, what gives me hope is that they, we, we did not defeat fascism. I'm, I'm not living in a delusional, you know, I, I, I haven't lost, I am still occupying a reality-based universe, unfortunately, as much as I would like to do otherwise, <laughs> you know, maybe with the aid of some herbal elements, I could, I could reach that place. But, um, so I am not pretending like, you know, we have a functional democracy. We didn't have one before. We don't have one now. We're working on it for sure. And I also am not pretending like we defeated fascism. But we made a massive body check on fascism at the ballot box. Mm -hmm. That's never been done. The only way that a fascist regime has ever been successfully countered has required military force. Mm. Mm. And what gives me hope is that because I work 
on politics in other countries. And I have a lot of friends in the UK who work in left and center left coalition politics and in Australia. I think if everyone would just follow more Australians and Brits and would observe their reaction to what we have achieved when they were tragically unable to defeat Boris Johnson, right? The Labour Party, Jeremy Corbyn, was not successful in their recent election. And in Australia, they still continue to have their conservative coalition government. The politics of divide and conquer and right-wing race baiting won out. And here it didn't. And yes, I know we wanted a blowout. And yes, I know we wanted to pick up the House. And yes, I know we wanted to sweep the Senate. I'm aware. But we did a thing that's never been done when they threw every single possible obstacle in our way. And by in our way, of course, I principally mean not voters like me. I'm not delusional. But that is an unprecedented achievement. And so when I say that we need to celebrate, I'm not celebrating Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. I'm celebrating us. We chose us and we keep choosing us. And that's what I believe in. Well said, as always. <laughs> Thank you so much, Anat, for revisiting all of this with us and giving us some more great post-election insights. So helpful. Thank you, Anat. Yeah, no worries. Thank you so much for joining us and for stepping up to take action. This is how we win. We win when we all get involved. We want to hear from you. Tweet to us at BluesBoySteve and at Mariah underscore Craven or email us at podcast at swingleft.org. If you haven't yet, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple or wherever you get your pods. Please share us with all of your friends too. Let's build this podcast up even more for 2021. Check out our page at swingleft.org slash podcast. And of course, sign up to volunteer. Check out the Georgia Hub. We need to flip Georgia. We really appreciate you being here with us and we'll be back with more next Wednesday. Have a great Thanksgiving, everyone. Happy Thanksgiving, everybody.